In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There is a relatively new cartoon TV show for kids on Disney Plus called Bluey. If you don't have a kid in your house, you may not have seen it yet. There's only three seasons. Each episode of Bluey is about eight minutes long and centers on a six-year-old anthropomorphized Austrian blue healer puppy named Bluey and her four-year-old sister Bingo and the antics that they get up to with their mom and dad. What is special about Bluey is that unlike a lot of children's programming, it is not teaching anything concrete like letters or numbers. Instead, each episode of Bluey is just about these two cartoon sisters playing together. The show's primary goal is to make children laugh and also to show parents what children can learn while playing. An episode I was recently watching, we watch a lot of Bluey in my house, an episode I was recently watching was called Shops. In it, Bluey attempts to set up a complicated role-playing game with her friends where they all pretend to be working in a store. But one of her fellow six-year-old friends only wants to pretend to be a cat, which is a difficult role to play when we're playing store. And another one of her friends only wants to be the person who makes the noise of the item scanner at checkout and just keeps saying beep, beep, beep. And another friend doesn't want to take all this time assigning roles, but just wants to start playing the game. Bluey gets more and more frustrated as she tries to control everyone's role in the game until finally her friends prevail and they realize they just need to start. They just need to start the improvisation. The episode is about the importance of jumping in, beginning, letting go of the notion that we can control everyone else in our life. And it is about the importance of being ready to improvise. On first reading of today's gospel story from Luke, you might think Jesus is on the side of Bluey. First of all, he is getting a little bossy in this story as he explains to this large crowd of people who is following him what it is going to take, what it is going to cost to be his disciple. He tells, as Jesus so often does, he tells two stories, one about a builder asking rhetorically to the crowds, would you not expect a builder to have a plan before starting a huge project, else he's not able to finish it. And he tells another story about warring kings. Would you not expect a king to know that he had the manpower needed to win a battle against another king? Jesus seems to be implying in his two examples that one needs to be entirely prepared before setting out on any task. 
and therefore that one needs to be entirely prepared to be a follower of Jesus. But it doesn't really make sense with the final line of the story, Jesus' next line, that disciples must give up everything they possess to follow Jesus, right? It's one of these moments in scripture where Jesus is talking, you think you're following, and then he throws you a curveball. If you must be totally prepared before setting out, wouldn't that imply kind of the opposite of giving everything away? Wouldn't it imply stripping yourself bare? Surely the builder and the king in those two metaphors have acquired much to achieve their visions. So what is Jesus telling us? What if, as is so often the case with Jesus' stories, our first reading is not necessarily the only way to understand what Jesus is saying? What if in this case, Jesus' examples are actually turning inward on himself? Instead of Jesus saying that we need to be prepared like a builder or a strong king, what if Jesus is feeling himself a bit in the midst of an improvisation? Jesus as builder, Jesus as king. Perhaps he is telling us what he needs from us what he thought he had when he set out. You see, Jesus wants people to follow him, not because of his ego or because he's concerned with numbers, but because he knows what he has for the world will change us for the better. He wants us to understand the work he is setting out for us to do. In the Gospel of Luke, at this point, Jesus has begun and is in the midst of this great work. And now there are massive crowds, the Gospel tells us, a massive crowd following him. Who are these massive crowds? Can Jesus trust that they are really understanding what he's saying, what exactly he is asking of them? In our world, and what do I mean by our world? As I look around this church and to the people who are watching online, what I mean when I say our world is the world in and around New York City, in capitalist America, where we have the means to be here in this building or the means to tune in on our computer or phone, we are far from floods in Pakistan and wars in Ukraine and other global disasters that lie heavy on our hearts as we know about them, but feel sometimes intangibly far away. In our world, it can be difficult to figure out exactly what Jesus is asking of us. What is Jesus asking of you? What does it mean to give things up for Jesus? Because what we do know from this story is that Jesus is not playing around. 
he is saying some difficult things. He's saying things like, hate your family, hate your children, hate life itself. If you want to follow me, give away every single thing you own. It doesn't sound practical and it doesn't sound appealing. But its harshness, its boldness, is what makes us listen. It's what rhetorically Jesus is using to get a message across to a huge, a massive crowd of people. Because what Jesus is proposing is not going to be comfortable or easy. Because change is never comfortable and change is what Jesus promises. This is the same Jesus in the Gospel of Luke who has told the story of the Good Samaritan, a person who risked life to expand the boundaries of connection, who let people know that following Jesus connects people across family lines, tribal lines, and even geographic lines. Compassion for our fellow humans is not limited to our own family members. So it is not exactly that Jesus calls you to hate your own family, but rather that Jesus calls you to make absolutely sure you are not privileging your family or even your life over God and where God is calling you to be. In our world, we can imagine Jesus talking to big crowds who were hoarding toilet paper in March 2020, to people who buy gallons of milk that will go bad in their fridge at the first whisper of snow, to people who live with extra bedrooms when one in every 106 New Yorkers have no room at all. God in Jesus loves compassion, mercy, and justice. And its opposite, therefore, is that God in Jesus hates poverty. God in Jesus hates greed, inequity, and injustice. If those things are tied up with your mother or father or children or even your own life, or your possessions, then imagine yourself in the crowd and you can bet Jesus is asking you to give those things up. This is not easy to hear or to grapple with. I have been thinking about this tricky problem of inequality this week, especially because of the death of Barbara Ehrenreich a journalist and writer famous for her work studying the quote-unquote working poor in America. In 2001, she published a book called Nickel and Dimed, an undercover account of being a low-paid worker in America. And here is what she wrote in that book. When someone works for less pay than she can live on, when, for example, 
She goes hungry so that you can eat more cheaply and conveniently. Then she has made a great sacrifice for you. She has made you a gift of some of her abilities, her health, and her life. The working poor, as they are approvingly termed, are in fact the major philanthropists of our society. They neglect their own children so that the children of others will be cared for. They live in substandard housing so that other homes will be shiny and perfect. They endure privation so that inflation will be low and stock prices high. To be a member of the working poor is to be an anonymous donor, a nameless benefactor to everyone else. Barbara Ehrenreich came to this conclusion by embedding herself as a waitress, a hotel housekeeper, a cleaning lady, a nursing home aide, and a Walmart associate. Across the jobs and locations that she held these jobs, she found it nearly impossible to subsist on an average of $7 an hour. And she wrote this book 21 years ago. The federal minimum wage today is $7.25. In New York, it's $15. Every job takes skill and intelligence, she concluded, and should be paid accordingly. About her work, Barbara Ehrenreich said in 2018, many people praised me for my bravery for having done this, to which I could only say millions of people do this work every day for their entire lives. Have you noticed them? In her obituary this week in the New York Times, she is quoted as having said that she believed that her job as a journalist was to shed light on unnecessary pain in the world. The idea is not that we will win in our own lifetimes, and that's the measure of us, but that we will die trying. Meaning the purpose of life is not to win by having the best family, the fastest, the richest, the most stuff, the most perfect children. Life is not a game to win. The idea is not that we will win in our own lifetimes and that is the measure of us, she said, but that we will die trying. We will die trying to improve the world around us. I see Ehrenreich's exhortation to us as quite in line with God's exhortation to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. It may seem contradictory to hear God tell us to choose life. At the same time, we hear Jesus tell us to hate life. 
And isn't that funny considering how many people mistakenly sum up our Christian Bible as an Old Testament God of fear and terror and a New Testament God of love? But what we see as a through line in Scripture is a God who loves justice and who wants that for you, for your life. When God tells you to choose life, this must always be in tandem with justice for those around you. How do we do it? Well, we cannot wait to set out on the journey until we know for sure we have all the materials lined up or all the money or all the things we need because that day will never come. This is when we remember Bluey and that we must jump in to the improvisation, to the messy, sometimes scary work of following Jesus. Because if we don't, we will miss all the fun, the joy, and the love that is to be had when we choose life. You don't need to have it all figured out to get started. Throw yourself into the improvisation now. Amen.